I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello and welcome back to the Royal Horticultural Society's Gardening Podcast. Today we're heading north to the beautiful surroundings of RHS Garden Harlow Carr. Nestled in the breathtaking Yorkshire countryside, this 58-acre garden is a huge attraction for visitors from all over the UK. Harlow Carr boasts an enormous variety of growing areas and landscapes, from woodland glades to trickling becks, and of course the magnificent Alpine House home to over 2,000 species of exciting and unusual plants. From the flowering bulbs and rhododendrons in spring to its much-loved winter walk, this garden delights visitors in every season. The beneficiary of recent major investment from the RHS, in 2018 Harlow Carr is more magnificent than ever. Our podcast team had a tour of the garden to see how it's all come together. My name is uh, Amy Beth Browning and I'm one of the gardeners here at Harlow Carr. I'm on the woodland team and I primarily work on the stream side as well as the woodland edge area of the garden. Right now we are standing on a lovely small bridge that is just located right below the sandstone rock garden that is surrounded by some amazing ferns, some lovely asplenums and lady ferns and lots of different primulas. The sound of the water seems to stop everybody on the bridge. It doesn't matter how old you are, so the youngest kids uh, come up and they get really excited as soon as they hear it. Everybody likes to look over and see the reflection, which is also really lovely. And this is a great spot to look up and down. Um, You can see the curve of the way the water is going and bending through the garden. It's like the spine of the garden in a way. And you just have a really lovely view down to, you've got the beautiful maples that are just arching over the garden and a lot of the iris foliage on the other side. It's a nice little intimate spot, really. On stream side, because a lot of the plants that we put in here are uh, water-loving, they're very vigorous. So actually, it's a lot about keeping a lot of the plants under control, really. Um, Everyone wants to compete against each other and, and grow bigger and better. So it's a lot about reining things in and just also getting some of the things that are not as vigorous to make sure they have the room, like the primulas, to really show their color. One of the plants that we're really known for in the garden is Mechanopsis, the Himalayan blue poppy, and they are not as vigorous as, say, some of these big, bold irises. So it's just constantly keeping a check on them so that the visitors can appreciate them for their amazing color. They look just like a poppy that we're always familiar with, the red poppy, but it's this beautiful blue and different shades of blue, and, it, and it's like almost a peaceful color, and it just stops you, and you, at the same time you see that color with the sound of water around you. It's a beautiful combination. It's so different 
to anything else that we have. And I think that's what stops you immediately. You don't expect to see something growing like that here. And then the more that you, you learn about the plant, being an alpine plant and it growing at these amazing mountainous areas, it's just like kind of meeting something completely new and different. And knowing that you can try to grow them in the northern part of the country and take that challenge on, it's, a, it's great. Definitely encourage people to try and grow them. If you want to recreate this, I would probably choose two or three plants. So start with some primulas because they do just add great colors. So there's always the Harlequin hybrid primula that gives you a choice of all sorts of pinks and oranges and all vibrant burgundy colors. And then maybe moving on to something like a hosta that has a completely different feel. And then maybe adding a fern in as well that has got a softer texture to this bolder foliage. From that, you have things like irises that are absolutely beautiful. And you also have things like carexes and grasses that really always look wonderful near water. And you think of these plants and the reflection that will create in the, in the water. Spring is my favorite and autumn is my second favorite part of the season for this area of the garden because it's surprising how much color these herbaceous plants add to the garden. They turn lots of shades of yellows and browns and we don't cut things back till very late winter because we keep it for interest. The seed pods on the iris stay up for ages. Some of the fern fronds have beautiful yellow autumnal colors to them. So there's actually quite a lot of architecture that's left in this area. And then you have all the trees and the maples in the background turning reds and oranges and yellows. So there's quite a lot, really. Early in the spring, um, you've got your wagtails going up and down, and it's absolutely wonderful. They go fly right underneath the bridges like it's some sort of raceway. I love it. They return later in the season as well. Um, the robins almost throughout the whole garden, but definitely all throughout this area the stream sign they're following us around a lot which is wonderful um and the wrens actually go in the foliage a lot because we've got so many oak trees and yews spotted around you can hear them quite a lot lots of small bees and butterflies as well are attracted to it especially when the sun's out and they're warming the wings i'm tom tom white one of the gardeners here and i work on the floral and ornamental team which covers pretty much everything from the stream upwards looking after herbaceous and shrubs. So here we're at Harlow Car and we're stood at the entrance just below the steps. We've got a new subtropical border planted in the end of May, beginning of June with lots of leafy foliage, things like bananas, castor oil plants, various different dahlias. There's about 20 different varieties in here. Some are pom-pom heads, some are very simple with bright colours, so oranges, reds, yellows. And then the salvias, we've got a whole range of different salvias with the amistad, which is purple. We've got a butin, which is bright pink, and this stolonifera, which is orange. So we've got nice hot colours as well. And also the foliage is quite interesting. Salvia discolour in front of us, which is very silvery, all to help give it that sort of tropical leafy foliage feel, really. En masse, it just works so well together. So the winter walk, very seasonal. At the moment, it's very leafy because we cut everything back in the spring. So they're putting on lots of new growth ready for this winter. So you get lovely, vivid stems of the Cornus midwinter fire, sort of oranges and yellows and reds. And the Kessel Ringii, which is very dark. At the moment, obviously, it's just full of leaf, but in the winter, it's just the bright stems that are left. And then you're followed through with spring bulbs 
irises, crocus, aconites, and even winter flowering shrubs like the hamamelis all give winter interest and um, structure as well. Also we've got conifers on here which also give different textures. Cryptomeria just behind us over there, quite a biggish shrub which turns more purpley with colour. So as well as lots of stem colours we've also got different textures on here as well. So we're coming up past a, a lovely, um, we've got Acer grisium on the left, good for bark, good for stem colour, and then we have another Acer over here, serpentine, lovely sort of stripy stems on the bark. So if you can imagine in winter when there's no leaf on, you're just left with these stripy stems and bark, which are also quite eye-catching. So we're walking past some pollarded willow, so we prune them really hard during the winter, and then all this, the growth that you can see at the moment, this is all one year's growth, and obviously it's made quite a massive height, and then we'll just be left with the lovely straight stems in the winter, so quite a show, but it, you have to appreciate that it's grown because it's pollard is like on a leg. It looks almost a bit like a knuckle after we've pruned it. People are a bit sort of amused by that style of pruning, but I mean, it responds to it, puts on masses of growth, and it's also a way of getting a bit of height into the border, um, and then you can also plant underneath it. So um, just a different technique of growing and showing what willow can do, really. So yeah, and then we're walking past some yew, which is sort of in waves, planted with hellebores at the base with the saracocca, so you get the scent as you walk past it. And also with the angles, it means that you get different views, different vistas around the garden, up to the learning centre and also down to the stream side. We're pretty much coming towards the end of the winter walk. And then you come up towards the lake and lakeside gardens which is straight in front of us and then you can head back down towards the stream side if you if you wish to harlow car became part of the rhs in 2001 when it merged with the northern horticultural society but the garden began its life in 1950 when it was built as a trials ground for testing the suitability of plants to grow in a northern climate. Well, my name's Martin Fish. I'm one of the garden advisors here at Harlow Carr, which is part of the RHS Gardens Committee. And because I live in the north of England near Harrogate, I'm one of the garden advisors here. Been a gardener since I left school at 16 and have worked in horticulture for 40 years. Harlow Carr started a long time ago, really. Harrogate is famous for the healing waters, the sulphur waters, that are all over this side of Harrogate. There's the valley gardens down the road where there are 30-odd springs in the garden. But Harlow Carr also had its springs, Carr meaning a, a wet area. And it's down sort of where the pump house is now. There were some sulphurous springs. And people would come to Harrogate in the early 1800s and they would take the waters and bathe in them because they believed they healed all sorts of ailments and aches and pains. So there are people... People been coming to the place of Harlow Carr for a few hundred years, but it wasn't really until about the 19, late 1940s that it became a garden. And the land was acquired by the Northern Horticultural Society, and they decided they wanted a garden to trial plants in the north of England for hardiness. So they had obtained the site here at Harlow Carr in 1946, started to develop the garden, and then opened it to the public in 1950. So it's 
been at Garden open to the public for quite a long time now. And Geoffrey Smith, who was a very famous local broadcaster and gardening presenter and writer, uh, he came here in the early 1950s as the curator and did an awful lot of work at Harlow Car, lots of this stonework and along the stream and the bridges over it and the rock gardens they were all the work of Geoffrey Smith he was here for over 20 years and really sort of put his mark on Harlow Carr and it carried on as the Northern Horticultural Society until 2001 and that's when the merger was with the Royal Horticultural Society and they took over the running of the garden and since then it's just improved beyond recognition it's such a wonderful garden that we've got so lucky to have it here in North Yorkshire. I think Harlow Carr is famous for the planting here and I mean, it's basically a, a valley with a wood on one side there's a stream running through it and I think the stream side garden is what people remember Harlow Carr the Harlow Carr hybrid primulas which are wonderful through May and June it's just a, a riot of colours oranges and yellows and pinks flowering then the mechanopsis with the lovely blue flowers there the Himalayan poppies and the woodland plants I think that's really what people think of Harlow Carr it's a garden all year round but in the spring and early summer it's just got so much colour and interest going for it. I think Harlow Carr is one of the best gardens that you'll ever visit. I mentioned the Streamside Garden, but I think one of the things that makes it special is it's quite a large garden, but it's not too big. And people can often see ideas here and relate to them in their garden and think, I could take that idea that I've seen at Harlow Carr and do a smaller version in my back garden at home. I mean, the winter walk is absolutely amazing from December right the way through till April. So much colour in the garden at a time when people think gardens are sort of dead and put to sleep for the winter. But here, you know, it's so many vibrant colours with the dogwoods and the willows and the spring bulbs and the winter flowering shrubs. And I also think the productive garden, which is really, really good. And again, it's realistic. It's a biggish garden, but it's done in a way that people can take ideas home with them. Lots of raised beds and different ways of growing and lots of new and innovative ideas there that the garden staff here at Harlow Car use. So I think it's got so many sort of small gardens within a larger garden and that's what makes it so special. Geologically, Harlow Car is really interesting as it features natural sulphur-rich springs that once tempted wealthy Victorians to come for a healing spa. As far as the plants are concerned, much of the soil here is acidic, which helps create the perfect environment for rhododendrons and many choice woodland plants. If you spend any time around gardening folk, you know that there are some plants that people seem to go crazy for, driving people to incredible lengths to see and grow them. We took a tour of the woodlands to see what all the fuss was about. My name is Matthew Brewer. I work as a wooden horticulturist and I'm in charge of the glade, uh, the woodland edge and the GM trial as well. I mean, I'm going to be biased because I'm of the woodland team, but I would say you're in the heart of the garden. So the curator's vision is that you will come down the entrance steps, down the steps and be led into the garden across the main bridge and into this central meadow area. From there you will go left to the woodland and to the play areas, right to the bathhouse and deep up into the woodland so that's where we are in the past people would automatically just go to the honeypot areas and we're trying to encourage people into the woodland as we walk along streamside you can see the areas where the banks haven't been developed with the old planting but as you progress onwards you can start to see all the new planting it's all about the uh, different foliage contrasts you've got rich green waxy hostas 
interplanted with Carex elata aria, which is a, a yellow spiky plant. Contrasts well with the uh, majestic seed heads of the candelabra primulas. The aim is that there's interest all year round. Playing upon halokaris, rocks, water, primulas and mechanopsis. So we're just playing on what, what looks great about the garden. Past the second bridge, the planting gets a little bit rougher because we've yet to develop it. But this is where we will be looking at developing next. As you keep going, you get to our right is the BFG statue, a famous highlight of the gardens. And we're onto the uh, woodland edge. So you, you walk along the woodland edge and you've got some stone raised walls, which children love to play along. And you keep going, Streamside is still to your left and it, we're coming into a, a nicer, more newly planted area. In the woodland, we're trying to extend uh, the season. So we're always trying to get late summer color. A woodland by nature is a spring garden and there's lots of color in spring, but we're always working to extend that and also add that layer of autumn color. This area is quite interesting because you have rich reds of Euonymus elatus, oak leaf hydrangea as well. As you go on towards the left, we have hamamelis, which in winter will be glistening with their lovely orange peel flowers. This is a lovely plant, can I draw attention to it? It's Actea simplex, baneberry is common name. This is a plant of interest later on in the season. Can you see it's got these lovely little delicate racemes coming up now, but they form like foxtail white flowers. The scent's amazing, it just carries along the stream side. So great one for late summer interest. To the right, I'll point out these Tibetan cherries and everyone loves them. They've got this lovely glossy burgundy, rusty red color, and they're just on the corner. So um, you always get questions about that. We keep going along the path. We, we're walking along the, what we call the main ride. What we've actually done in this area is we've opened it up. So we've got all these really very large old rhododendrons, giant twisty red or gray trunks, like fingers, gnarly fingers, topped with lovely luscious green growth. They're old, they're 50 years plus. Uh, we're busy making sense of them, um, what they are, and trying to regeneratively prune the ones we can, making the most of them really. Until recently, a lot of these rhododendrons, a lot of growth had encroached upon the main ride and it was quite narrow and windy and we've been clearing things back and opening it up and give it more of a sort of a broad walk that people can get down free abreast if you want to consider it that way. We want to head up into the glade. Not everyone sadly gets up here, they tend to stay on the main route but it's really worth checking out. It's lovely, it's nice and quiet and peaceful. A lot of plants as we're developing streamside, the area we looked at earlier, they're coming up here and they do very well in these conditions, quite shady and moist. So we're planting them up here, but we're adding hostas at the back. We're sort of like electric blue hostas that go really well with the ferns. You had some martican lilies that just finished. On our right, it's a really lovely tree. I mean, it's finished now, but I have to talk about it. It flowers late May, early June, and it's called Rhododendron Loderi King George. It starts off with this really amazing dark pink flower almost when it is in bud. And then as it opens up, it gets to pale pink. And then when it's fully mature, white. And it again has this most amazing heady scent. And people love it. Next to it is the rhododendron unique, which has orange flowers and it flowers in spring. Again, scented, but this forms a bit of a pinch point. So as you progress into the glade, 
you can't see what's ahead of you and then ah, you're into a, an opening, a clearing. As we walk along the path we can see some GM lemon drops, not used that widely but they do fantastically well here up in the glade. Dark green and luscious after the recent rain we've had but they've got a sort of lemon yellow flower. To our left is a path that I created. This area originally through here was all these um, self-seeding birch hollies and things like that and we came through with chainsaws, cleared a path through, just created a, a higher path. We've got a lot of big paths but those little intimate side paths that wind through the area which you can explore yourself, maybe where vehicles can't get to, where you can put maybe slightly more interesting unusual varieties of plants in as well. What else have we got? Sacidophyllums, I mean the sacidophyllums, how can we not talk about those? They run through this area. Another amazing scent plant. Smells a bit like burnt sugar or candy floss as it rots down in the autumn. It sort of starts losing its leaves and it will carpet the ground with these yellowy, pink, rosy coloured leaves and it just wafts of burnt sugar. You can grab a handful of them and smell them, it's amazing. So we head now back down from the glade and head back towards the main ride. This is the other area of Streamside, the other end that we started at and what we started at. And you can see the giant rhubarb, which we have to talk about because it's what every single visitor asks about and loves. These, we can stand underneath them and feel like ants really, can't we? Very spiky and rough, They're like elephant skin if you touch them. And they're just fun. We've got a few patches of these in the garden, but people are certainly drawn to them. My name is uh, Amy Beth Browning and I'm one of the gardeners here at Harlow Carr and I work on the woodland team and I primarily work on the stream side and the woodland edge area of the garden and, and care for a lot of the, uh, the fern areas, fern collection of the garden. And we are currently sitting in a small little tiny private corner that leads up to the Dryopteris fern collection. It's an area that is shady and it's very sweet, it's actually quite quiet. It's an area where you can sit and read and drink some tea on a lovely bench. And it's surrounded by a memorial fern collection and um, that just has lots of different textures and colors to it. I just recently came back on a trip back from the United States to see the uh, Great Smoky Mountains in Tennessee and North Carolina. I applied for a bursary through the RHS to be able to go there to um, see the wildflowers of the area, particularly ferns and trilliums. Day to day, a lot of it is going out, a lot of weeding, cutting back, pruning, planting, dividing. There's a lot of identification as well because it's a lot wilder than the, say, stricter ornamental areas. Um, there's a lot of wildflowers and weeds to learn and what to keep under control and, and what to encourage as well. Harlow Carr, at least I think, is so special because there's a great mix of the wild and ornamental. You come in and you just see lots of big wild areas. We have a lot of meadows not too far from areas that are highly cultivated and ornamental. So you get the mixture of both worlds. So we have a lot of great wildlife habitats in the garden. So you got a lot of birdsong, a lot of insects and butterflies flying around you while you have also mowed lawns. So there's a mixture of both. There's a great balance. It's not just strictly one way. And the other thing I think that makes the garden special is actually the people. The gardeners here are from all different places and they all have different talents and skills and they just add so much creative parts to the garden. You, you totally can see it when you come in. I love being outside. I 
just love being outside. I am enamored with nature. I am enamored with birds and wildlife. I can't get enough of them. I don't mind if it's raining or snowing or anything outside. I, I'm just being a part of this exciting weather. And I've learned more about myself, I think, by learning about plants in a very strange way. So just good fun. I think visitors should come to see Harlow Carr if they would love a day to come out to be inspired. I hope they leave wanting to do something in their own garden. I just think there's so many creative corners that the gardeners have done here. They've acquired and planted and preserved so many amazing plants here. There's so much inspiration to take away, whether your garden is tiny or large, if it's got a stream, or you can only do pots. We try to do everything that people can just walk away and, and want to make their own little Eden, really. And uh, just like, you know, we do for our own homes, we're thinking about what people would like to leave with. We'll be hearing more about the exciting opportunities RHS bursaries offer for plant lovers in our next podcast. You can find links to photos and information about Harlow Carr on our programme page at rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. As well as the gardens, wildlife, views and delicious food and drink, there is also a varied diary of events and attractions for visitors to enjoy throughout the year. If you're an RHS member, not only can you access the garden for free, but you can get reduced price tickets to many events. There's lots coming up at Harlow Carr in the coming weeks including a sculpture trail featuring artworks from Yorkshire artists, a plant fair, autumn festival and open-air cinema to name just a few. See our podcast page for a link to full listings. Now Harlow Carr isn't just an amazing garden to walk around. It also has an excellent library and learning centre for those wanting to grow their knowledge. We met with the library team to find out more. I'm Sue Padgham, I'm site librarian here at Harlow Carr. So from the 1st of September, we've got uh, an exhibition on Sir Humphrey Repton. It's uh, the bicentennial anniversary of the death of Humphrey Repton this year. And so we're just sort of celebrating what he did. He was one of the last great English landscape designers of the 18th century. And he's famous for his red books in which he set out his design proposal for the client with paper flaps on his drawings to enable the client to see before and after features. It's a very clever idea really, very ahead of his time. And we have two of those red books that we're going to put on show here so that people can actually see what he did. The Apple exhibition is called Codlings, Costards and Biffins and uh, that explores our long history of apple growing and it sort of celebrates the ways that we're, we're preserving this rich heritage for the future. That will run from the 20th of October to the 30th of November and that coincides with the Northern Fruit Grower Weekend that we always hold here. It's an annual event here uh, in which the Northern Fruit Grower Group will come and there'll be apple identification and apple displays. I'm Samantha Findlay and I'm site librarian at Harlow Carr Library. The library's open every day uh, that the garden's open, so from 11 till 4, apart from over Christmas. It's a fabulous resource for people. We get lots of people who have various different kinds of inquiries. So, for example, somebody may be wanting information about tracking down an ancestor who's worked in a garden, and that's a very popular inquiry for people that are researching their family history. We also have researchers that maybe are looking into the history of a particular garden or a garden plant. 
So we have those kind of people, but then we have people who are just generally very interested in gardening and they may be wanting to plan a little area of their own garden or they may decide that they want to start growing some vegetables and we've got lots of books and resources here that enable them to do their own research as well. Anybody who comes into the garden can come in and visit the library. If you're an RHS member, you can join the library and then that entitles you to borrow books for free. It's just fabulous to have this kind of resource in a garden like Harlow Carr. Recently, people have been moving back to having more alpine plants and Harlow Carr is leading that charge with their alpine house. We went along and met another member of the team there. My name's Andrew Willicks. I'm a team leader of the nursery in the alpine department. I've worked here now for 22 years. This particular glass house is very, very interesting because it was built now approaching over 10 years ago. It was very much needed because uh, we'd had the original glass houses, some of them which dated back to the 1950s. And when we do grow alpines, they do need to have specialised growing unit, almost like a chimney setup of ventilation systems as you can see here we've got a very very low ventilation system to the side which you would see in a conventional glass house and then very very high ventilation systems which uh, will conduct the air right up out of the roof of the glass house this makes sure that the alpines are getting a good movement of air around the plants which is very similar to what they would be getting on top of a mountain or a scree side an alpine plant is a plant that exists above the tree line so it's basically the first plant that you'll come into contact with after you've walked through the last tree line of vegetation on a mountainside so uh, you know you could be looking at plants in here from the uh, Pyrenees to the Himalayas parts of South Africa South America the great thing about alpines is that basically most countries have got an alpine or an alpine related plant in them so they're quite challenging plants that can at times require a little bit of specialist sort of attention. Somebody's got a balcony or somebody's got a very confined space and they want, they're very, very keen on growing a wide range of plants. I think alpine suits and tick all the right boxes because you can grow up to 20, 30 plants of different species in one small container without having to worry about having to uh, look at a, a very, very large garden to continue with your gardening interests so quite often people are downsizing in houses and apartments and uh, if you've got a gardening interest and unfortunately you may have lost your garden you can still carry that on by having a trough full of alpines and the great thing about them is if you plant them carefully you've actually got interest all the year round you can intermix the plants with things like autumn bulbs from south america also south africa and then coming through to spring bulbs and early summer bulbs as well so uh, it's not just about the plants that you see visibly within the container it's the plants that are coming out now we've got a lot of cyclamen coom and hedrofolium which come from eastern mediterranean a lot of them will be just starting to emerge now with the first falls of rain in the balkan areas and particularly around greece and turkey so there's a lot to be gained by growing alpines and quite often it's a thing that possibly lost a bit of appeal after the 1970s where everybody had a rock garden and then after the intensity of having to look after a rock garden this possibly 
went out of fashion a bit but now we're getting so much interest by people particularly who've had to downsize with the garden and they want to take their interest of horticulture and garden onto a balcony or a veranda in a flat or something like that and they can do so by having a look at the vast range of plants we have here in the alpine department and uh, continue with that uh, interest for many years to come some of the, my, my most favorite plants are the particularly from new zealand osothamus corallides it looks like you can just see it from here it's a gray thing that also looks like gray coral that you would see on the bottom of the seabed and it's one of my favorites actually because structurally it's interesting all the year round there are some bright vibrant plants dionysias drabas and androsaces but they're only in flower for a short period of time my favorite alpine plants tend to be plants that are interesting all year round with a good structure possibly limited flowering but quite interesting formations of stems and leaves the work in here i find is you can actually almost escape to the mountains you walk through here and i think anybody i think who is passionate about alpines will tell you this that um, by walking through here you're almost transformed to different parts of the country quite often you see alpines displayed as you can see here in plunge beds but i always push harlow car particularly the um, display area here in the naturalistic form of sandstone rocks here because people can come in and actually photograph the plants almost in a naturalistic state and imagine how they would look if the plants were growing in Greece or Turkey or the Lebanon or Israel and places like that. I just like the combination of architectural plants with naturalistic stone as well and uh, you can actually go for a more contemporary look or a generally a conventional uh, naturalistic look with your rock garden arrangements as well so that's why I do like it a lot. RHS Garden Harlow Car, well worth a visit at any time of the year. That's all we have time for today but we'll be returning to explore more parts of this Yorkshire gem in future podcasts. Walking down the path in my garden, and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. 
Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced-rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> 